Now please uh, rise for the reading of God's word as we turn to it to study the privilege we have of studying God's word. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. Jesus is speaking. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. But do not think, I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Heavenly Father, this is a hard-hitting passage. And Jesus is striking back at the Pharisees who are beginning to persecute him, whose anger and rejection of Jesus rose to the point that they demanded his crucifixion. But Jesus is the one in charge. He's the one who is the judge. And as he speaks to them, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would enlighten his words to us, that we would examine our hearts That we would see, are we responding with faith and trust in him that leads to love for you in response to your love for us? Or are we just in church, like the Pharisees, still rejecting him, leaving this place to live for ourselves? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week... We talked about the impeachment of Jesus. Obviously, what's going on in our culture you know, makes that a, 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 an option for a title. It actually came from something in the text last week where the verb that is uh, translated uh, back in chapter 5, uh, verse 19 and in verse 17, it says, Jesus gave them this answer. The verb translated gave them this answer is a legal word. The tense of it, the tense of that word is not used commonly. That word is used with another tense in conversation that he answered. 
But legally, he presented his defense to their charges. The tense is used in legal documents in the first century. And once I saw that, I realized the drama of what is going on in our culture is the drama of this passage. And to draw you into it, I know we get so used to Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, it seems far and distant. But if I can somehow draw you in to the drama of the confrontation, then that helps us understand this passage. So I'm, I'm not, as I said last week, I'm not trying to make parallels between President Trump and Jesus. Please, we're not doing that. But the parallels between the conflict between authorities... That's here. And the Pharisees came at Jesus with charges. Their first charge was, you're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus answered that charge. I am working. He didn't deny it. As my father is always at work. And that really got their goat. My father, he's claiming not our father, but my father in some special and unique way. And they knew that what he was claiming as God is at work, so I also am at work, was claimed to be equal with God. And they saw that as blasphemy. So they wrote up a second charge of impeachment impeachment that was far more serious. Now, lest you think that it uh, trivializes it or or is false, I, I just remind you that more was at stake in Jesus' day than is at stake in our country today. In all the process of the last two weeks, the presidency was at stake. We still have a wonderful system of government that restrains a human sinfulness because of the divisions of the branches of government and the checks and balances of elections, etc., etc. Praise God we have that in our country. And there was a lot of important stuff at stake. But this is more important. This is life or death. This is heaven or hell. And they were out to re- remove Jesus from office. They were out, ultimately, to crucify him. And they succeeded. This is the beginning of that drama. When they see that Jesus is doing his work on the Sabbath, they object and they hear his claim to be God the Son. And Jesus answered them. Last week we looked at the beginning points of his answer, the positive points. He says, I do what I see my Father doing. The Father loves me. He shows me everything he's doing. As the Father gives life, so the Son gives life. I give life to whom I please. And the Father judges no one separate from me. He has entrusted judgment to the Son. And I judge. Jesus turned the tables so that his accusers were no longer simply the prosecutors and he was the defendant. Jesus was saying, I'm the judge. I'm the judge. And we pick up the drama at this moment in verse 31, and bring, Jesus brings in witnesses. Now that was this week's issue. I mean, that seems like years ago now, doesn't it? We always think about what's next. That The news is settled because it was three days ago, four days ago. We've gone on to the next thing. And I'm not about to get drawn into political comment from the pulpit. Except just enough to maybe rile you up enough for you to take that and apply it to the context in the passage because then you enter in what's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. I thought early on that the house was presenting its case and uh, in, in the 
the presentation, the impeachment uh, articles in the House. They had witnesses for the prosecution. And Adam Schiff, the chairman of the committee, could veto any witnesses for the defense. I thought, well, that's okay. That's one side of the story. When it goes to the Senate, we'll get the other side of the story. We'll get more witnesses, witnesses for the defense. It didn't work out that way, did it? Whatever side you're on, if you're starting to think, because we do get our emotions going over this, don't we? Now, set aside what's going in our country and apply that to this, because more is at stake. Jesus does call in witnesses for the defense. He says in the first place, in verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. The word is actually my testimony is not true. He's not saying that he doesn't speak the truth. He's establishing the principle, if you teach your own horn, then that's not valid testimony. He's not, he's not saying, take my word for it, although we ought to take the word of Jesus for it. He is God the Son. But he's establishing in this kind of courtroom drama, don't just take my word for it. That rules out all the cult leaders, all the, the people that have claimed to be uh, messiahs. Jesus is not like that. He has testimony about who he is, what his claims are, and what he accomplishes that are beyond his own words. So he's not referring to his own testimony. He refers then to the testimony of John. He says, leading up to it, he says, There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Now, I would ask you to take the statement in verse 32 and hold it, because I think Jesus is parenthetically referring to John. When he says there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid, he's not talking about John. He's talking about a greater testimony. He then mentions John. He mentions John saying, you've sent to John and has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. John prepared the way for the Messiah by proclaiming uh, the holiness of God and the call to repent so that they would be ready for the Messiah to come. They would recognize their need for a Savior. That was what John did. But Jesus is not dependent upon human testimony. He is God the Son. And he has greater testimony than that. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John. Then Jesus calls two witnesses for his defense. The first, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. Back in John chapter 3, there was a Pharisee who came to to Jesus. John chapter 3, we read about Nicodemus. Now there was a man, this is verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now we understand more why he came at night. Because the Pharisees were out to get Jesus, and Nicodemus didn't want to be associated yet, but he was spiritually seeking. 
Later, we know in the Gospels, he came to faith and was a follower of Christ. He helped Joseph of Arimathea take the body of Jesus off the cross and, and bury him. This was the beginning of his seeking after Jesus. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, when we studied that passage, much was made that Nicodemus began with, here's what I know. And yeah, he needed to go further beyond what he could accomplish for himself. And Jesus said, you must be born again. But he began with the, the evidence. We know that no one can do the things you do, except he be sent from God. Look at John chapter 11. When Jesus raised Nicodemus from the dead... The Pharisees' response, when they saw, and not, not Nicodemus, uh, Lazarus from the dead, when the Pharisees saw Lazarus raised from the dead, and he had been in the grave four days, they were not amazed and cut to the heart and struck with belief. They said this, verse uh, 47, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their agenda is revealed. They're protecting their place in their nation. In spite of the evidence right in front of them of Lazarus raised from the dead. Jesus points to this witness. When he says, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. But the work that Jesus came to do is not just his miracles. His miracles were the first taste. They were the earthly evidence. The work that he came to do was the work that he did on the cross. He went to the cross, and when the Pharisees thought they had won, they uh, roused up the crowd to demand his crucifixion. Pilate washed his hands of it. Herod mocked him. Pilate handed Jesus over to the soldiers and commanded he be crucified between two thieves. And Jesus was crucified, and Satan was inspiring it all from behind as he got Judas to betray him to this end. And as the, the movie The Passion from years ago, It shows a little bit in a visual way the dynamic of the spiritual battle going on. When Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished what he came to do. And Satan was just. His jaw dropped to the ground because he thought he won, only to find his head had been crushed. He had been the accuser of the the saints that you're sinners. God, you must punish their sin. Now God had punished their sin in Jesus. Jesus accomplished his work. And more than that, death didn't hold him. His spirit went on to heaven immediately. He said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. They committed his body to the ground. His body was raised on the third day and Jesus appeared to his disciples again. And those who had been doubters, those who had been cowards, were uh, were witnesses of the work that Jesus did. His life, his death, his resurrection is the witness that Jesus points to to prove that his claims are true. There's no cult leader that can do that. No false preacher that wants a following can do that. No false religion can do that. Only Jesus did this. And by the work that the Father sent him to do, 
It testifies that the Father has sent me. That's what Jesus says. And then he goes on to say, verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. There was a time at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was baptized that the Father spoke. He said, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. His disciples heard the Father testify to his Son. Those who were unbelieving evidently just kind of heard the rumble of thunder. They couldn't hear the word of God. And you might think, well, that's understandable. Why didn't God make it plain to them? He had written in Scripture. They had the Scriptures in their hands that testified about the Christ. They had all of that before them. They studied it. They were experts in the law. This was their job. This was their responsibility. They had it all in their hands, but they still would not believe, so they could not hear God speak, even though they were experts in what God said. Hmm. Jesus is saying, the Father who sent me has himself testified in his word, and it's not just his voice from heaven during Jesus' life. It is the word of God that we hold in our hands that God is testifying about his son. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. There's something interesting in the way that is phrased. The Pharisees thought that by the scriptures they could figure out how to be righteous in themselves, obedient enough to be God's favorites. And that's how they would be accepted by God, because they were law keepers. They were the righteous ones, and it gave them right to look down on everybody else. It says, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Instead of in them, you find the way God has provided, the way God has given you eternal life through the work that I have come to do. He said, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know you do not have the love of God in your hearts. He begins to point out now the ironies of unbelief. There's an advertisement on TV that I think it's about um, the expense of hearing aids. And I love the way the, the man just says, he says, it's just ridiculous. I, I can't even say it as well. He says it perfectly. It's just ridiculous. Unbelief actually is ridiculous when you look at the evidence for it. Here are the ironies, the ridiculousness of their unbelief. Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? Here's the principle that points out the ridiculousness of unbelief. People can be so skeptical about God. People can be so skeptical about Jesus People can be so skeptical about God's word and yet so gullible about anything else. Just turn on the TV and see what it is that our culture believes and embraces. 
what the world believes and embraces. How gullible we are. Why is it we're so gullible? We'll believe almost anything. We'll believe in the, the, the ghost stories of haunted houses and all this kind of stuff and yet reject Jesus because uh, we're, more, we're more modern and scientific than that. How do we get there? It's because we have itching ears. Do you recognize that, that phrase? It's from Paul's letters to Timothy. That in, in the days after Jesus' coming, until he comes again, from his first coming to his second coming, People will gather around themselves uh, teachers that will teach them what their itching ears want to hear. We love the messages that aren't we wonderful. We get to have our own way. We get to do what we want. We are just so special. We love those messages. There is an affirmation that comes from the love of God for us while we were yet sinners that is far deeper and more profound than any of that kind of affirmation. That's affirmation built on empty air. But we love to hear those things. So we'll believe anything that can support. You get to think what you want to think. You get to do what you want to do. But when we turn to God and to his son Jesus and to his word, the Bible says... It is sin for you to rebel against God. He's the one who gave you life. And you forfeit the right to life when you do that. The way back to God is not something you can achieve for yourself. It is something you have to depend entirely on God for. He gives it to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And when he gives it to you through faith in Jesus Christ, you receive him not just as Savior and then you go on living for yourself. You receive him as Savior and he is your Lord. And you turn to follow him. And that cuts against the grain of our old nature. We don't want to hear that. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want to hear that. So all the evidence in the world, the evidence of one raised from the dead, actually more than just Jesus, there are others who are raised from the dead, but Jesus is the ultimate because he was raised on the other side of death and appeared to his disciples. Even that evidence just hardened the heart. If we don't stop this now, everybody's going to follow him we got to kill him. That's the way the Pharisees responded. That's why people can be so skeptical about God, about Jesus, and about the Bible. Because we don't want to hear it in our natural selves. But we want to hear what our itching ears want to hear. It takes the work of God in our hearts by his spirit to give us a new heart. To give us new desires. That we would, the, the work of the spirit first is the conviction of sin. That what we deserve is his uh, condemnation hell forever it's a mercy that god tells us about that to warn us about that because if we see the consequences of it that's a tool that the holy spirit uses to give us new desires that we would turn from living for ourselves to give ourselves to the lord jesus christ and it takes the work of god to do that you can point out that unbelief is just ridiculous But it doesn't matter if we're hardened in our hearts and want to reject him anyway. Second irony of unbelief is the very thing that they put their trust in is what will accuse and condemn them on the day of judgment. Verse 45, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, but since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe 
what I say. They are experts in the law. They are rabbis, teachers of Moses. That's what their field is is known for. And they put their hope in the law, thinking that they can do well enough to make it to heaven so they can look down on everybody else. How many Christians are like that? How many churchgoers, maybe I should say, are like that? How much does the world think that the message of Christianity is, I disapprove of you, I am better than you, you need to wake up and do it the way I tell you is God's way. That's the Pharisees' way. Instead of the world seeing Christians humble, contrite for our own sin, turning to find a Savior with the grace of God given to us that just thrills our soul and we want to share it with others because of the grace that we've found. That's the gospel. The Pharisees put their hope in Moses, but Moses would accuse them. Jesus would not be their accuser. Jesus is the judge. There's a prosecutor. The prosecutor is the law. And when we don't live up perfectly to the law, what we, we get what we deserve. Our sin is always punished. It's either punished in our own uh, eternal death or our sins are imputed to Christ and God's wrath is poured out for our sins in Christ and he pays for them in full. That's the gospel. Yesterday, Mary and I watched a, a documentary film called The American uh, Gospel, Christ Alone. It is excellent. I recommend it to all of you. It's, uh, it begins in the first section of it, just explaining what the gospel is. And if you do look at it and see it, I hope you recognize that is what we have been teaching and preaching and proclaiming and living by in this church. And then it turns to critique, to expose the scam of the health and wealth gospel and its proponents uh, in the counterfeit church today. And frankly, I haven't made uh, a life study of the counterfeits. I, I only know kind of around the corner about the Kenneth Copelands and the Joel Osteens and all of that. I hear snippets of what they say. And, and, and this really taught me a lot of stuff. It tells, it's very entertaining in the way it presents it. And there is a, a vignette uh, in it. I never thought that I would mention Joy Behar from the pulpit. But she's a perfect illustration uh, for this morning for this. Because she was saying in one little vignette on on The View, she said, I'm a good person. I'm nice to my neighbors. I haven't stolen anything. And one of the other panelists who really sounded like a Christian, it was just a a little 20 seconds, 15 second vignette. She said, have you ever lied? And Joy said, is that in there? Got me. When we stand before God, if we're trusting in our own goodness, you see, the, the health and wealth gospel is essentially belief in yourself. I'm good enough. God owes me. I just name it and claim it. I'm a good person. Self-affirmation, affirm everybody else, power of positive thinking, and we're all fine. And then when we get to stand before God, we're going to say, was that in there? Was that in there? Was that in there? There are interviews in this where uh, someone would be talking with someone just on the street who's willing to be filmed, willing to, to answer these questions in this way. And uh, he'd say, yeah, yeah, I'm a good person. 
And you ask the question, you know, the Bible says if you lust after a woman in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Have you ever done that? Oh, it was great to see the looks on guys' faces. Well, well, uh, yeah. Um, And the Bible says not to lie. Have you ever told a lie? Well, um, uh, well, yes. Um, Have you ever uh, envied other people? Have you ever did? Have you and the guy at the end said, so what you've just told me is that you are a lying, adulterous, covetous person. And yet you think you're good. It's, it's really interesting. And the, the fellow was willing because God was at work in his life and he turned to embrace Christ as his Savior. You see, the loving thing to do as a church is not to say, you're okay. And then when people get before God, say, was that in there? Was that in there? Was that in there? It's to say, this is the gospel. We are sinners in the sight of God. Our hearts have been far from him, but we have found the love of God expressed to us in Christ the Savior. This passage ends with Jesus condemning the unbelief of the Pharisees. Hear what Jesus is saying, lest you be simply in church and not responding to him in faith. When you put your faith in him, then you find grace and love and forgiveness, fullness of life, and in the health and wealth gospel. It's actually all true if you just have an eternal perspective. In this life, Christians are not guaranteed exemption from suffering. In fact, God often leads us through difficulty. He knows the fallen world. He knows the consequence of sin. But he will one day in glory forever, heal us of every disease, fill our souls, not because of all the things we'll have in heaven, but because we will be his and we will belong to him and we will know him and that's the way he created us to be. This is the fruit of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we come this morning with lots of doubts and struggles, if we are in circumstances that would lead us away from you, I pray that you would enable us by your spirit to pay attention to the witnesses that Jesus points to, his miraculous work that he did in his ministry, even more his death and his resurrection on our behalf, and that we would turn and put our trust in him. If we've known this for decades And we have followed Christ. I pray that you would refresh the gospel in our lives this morning. That we would leave this place with the fullness of spirit that comes from being full of the Holy Spirit. That we would live for you. In love for you. That is responding to your love for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.